thin here. Let's try to get my PowerPoint going here. So you guys can open up to 1 Samuel 16. Uh, there we go. I'm just going to read the entire text from beginning to, to end as we start. So this is 1 Samuel chapter 16, beginning in verse 1. The Lord said to Samuel, How long will you grieve over Saul, since I have rejected him from being king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go. I will send you to Jesse, the Bethlehemite, for I have provided for myself a king among his sons. And Samuel said, How can I go? If Saul hears it, he will kill me. And the Lord said, Take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. And invite Jesse to the sacrifice. And I will show you what you shall do. And you shall anoint for me him whom I declare to you. Samuel did what the Lord commanded and came to Bethlehem. The elders of the city came to meet him trembling and said, Do you come peaceably? And he said, Peaceably, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. And he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. When they came, he looked on Eliab and thought, Surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Then Jesse called Abinadab and made him pass before Samuel, and he said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. Then Jesse made Shammah pass by, and he said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. And Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel. And Samuel said to Jesse, The Lord has not chosen these. Then Samuel said to Jesse, Are these are all your sons here? And he said, There remains yet the youngest, but behold, he is keeping the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, Send and get him, for we will not sit down till he comes here. And he sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy and had beautiful eyes and was handsome. And the Lord said, Arise, anoint him, for this is he. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. And Samuel rose up and went to Ramah. Now the Spirit of the Lord departed from Saul, and a harmful spirit from the Lord tormented him. And Saul's servant said to him, Behold now, a harmful spirit from God is tormenting you. Let our Lord now command your servants who are before you to seek out a man who is skillful in playing the lyre. And when the harmful spirit from God is upon you, he will play it and you will be well. So Saul said to his servants, Provide for me a man who can play well and bring him to me. One of the young men answered, Behold, I have seen a son of Jesse, the Bethlehemite, who is skillful in playing. 
a man of valor, a man of war, prudent in speech, a man of good presence, and the Lord is with him. Therefore Saul sent messengers to Jesse and said, Send me David, your son, who is with the sheep. And Jesse took a donkey laden with bread and a skin of wine and a young goat and sent them by David, his son, to Saul. And David came to Saul and entered his service. And Saul loved him greatly, and became, he became his armor-bearer. And Saul sent to Jesse, saying, Let David remain in my service, for he has found favor in my sight. And whenever the harmful spirit from God was upon Saul, David took the lyre and played it with his hand. So Saul was refreshed and was well, and the harmful spirit departed from him. I've been, does this come up? I've been teaching through uh, the books of First and Second Samuel for about a year in a, an adult Sunday school class at our church, and I've I've loved it. It's <laughs> it's it's kind of blown my doors off. I've learned so much. The book of Samuel, and it really is actually one book. They just split it because of technical constraints of fitting the two of them into one scroll. But it, the book of Samuel has been called by by many non-Christian scholars as perhaps the greatest work of literature in, in all of the ancient world because of its depth of character and its insight into human nature. And of course, what it reveals to us about God and, and about ourselves as human beings. But teaching through Samuel, I've become aware of a, a particular danger, and that danger is teaching Old Testament texts uh, sort of like Aesop's fables. Do you guys remember? Do you remember from elementary school, like Aesop's fables? It's it's an interesting story with a moral at the end, like the 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 tortoise and the hare, or the fox and the crow. And it's an interesting story. And, and at the end of it, it says, "Be like the tortoise, don't be like the hare, or be like David and don't be like Saul." They're morality tales, right? That's really the wrong approach to teaching Old Testament stories. We do learn things about what we should do from Old Testament stories and things we should not do, but that's really not the main point of Old Testament stories. What is the main point of Old Testament stories? There is one main actor moving through every Old Testament story, and that is who? It's God himself, right? All of these smaller stories make up one grand story, and that is God's story of redemption, how God created a, a good and perfect world, how that world was wrecked by the fall, and then God says, well, that's a lost cause. I'm done with that, right? No, God sets out in human history this, this grand drama that God enacts to redeem the world to himself. As Colossians 1 says, to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross, God, if he just said, well, I guess we'll, that, that W gets chalked up for the devil and I'll 
maybe build another world. No, God wouldn't be, God wouldn't be holy. He wouldn't be all-powerful if he just wrote the world off as a lost cause. And so God begins this grand rescue plan in the Old Testament. It involves a cast of thousands, characters like Noah and Abraham and Sarah and Isaac and Jacob and Moses and Miriam and Joshua and Ruth. But all of these individual stories, they're all, they're all forwarding this, this one great story, pointing forward to one moment in human history, to one central figure. Who is that? It's Jesus, right? All human history culminates in Jesus. You guys have history classes. I, I always like history. All these uh, great empires of the ages shifting around and, and clashing into each other. And, and we tend to think that's what history is really about. Really, the, the real center of history, <laughs> for real, is the life and death and resurrection of Jesus. And all of these great empires are just a footnote to that. So when we approach the book of Samuel, we need to ask ourselves, how does the story of Samuel, the book of Samuel, how do these stories fit into the larger grand story of redemption? Not, how can I be a better person like David and not be a worse person like Saul? Although we do learn things from them along the way. Do a, do a fun little experiment. Um, you don't have to do this right now, but, but make, a, make a list on the left-hand side of your paper of all of the sins, the worst sins that Saul committed. And then, actually it was Mr. Dockweiler who, who, who tipped me off to this. Then, then on the other side of your paper, make a list of the worst sins that David committed. Which one would you rather have your name? I would say... What's the lesser of the evils? Which one would you rather not have your name attached to, right? Like David's sins, man, I mean, a guy who, who took one of his most loyal soldiers and stole his wife while he was away fighting for David at war, and then to cover up the affair had him murdered. Like David, <laughs> David, uh, I would not want my, my reputation attached to some of the things David did. So it's not, it's not really necessarily that, that David was better and Saul was worse. David, in spite of himself at times, is absolutely crucial to this grand story of redemption that rolls forward through history, not because of his perfection, but because God made a promise to David. Perhaps the most crucial chapter in all of of First and Second Samuel, and I, I've heard you guys maybe aren't going to get to this because you're just doing First Samuel, but I urge you read Second Samuel chapter seven because that is kind of the the chapter on which the whole uh, the whole framework of First and Second Samuel hinges. That is the chapter that includes what we call the Davidic covenant. Uh, it's, a, it's the chapter where, where God comes to David and his sovereign choice of David, he, he, he says, through your house, David, through your seed, through your family line, 
I'm going to raise up a king, a true king, a king who for once in all times will set things right. And uh, David, is, David is a type, what we call a, a, a shadow, a foreshadowing of that coming king. Uh, but he's not the king, but God is going to use David and David's line to bring that king uh, to the world. So now that we've framed this story, I think in the, in the right frame, we've looked at the forest. Let's, let's head into the trees now of, of the actual text. So chapter 16, verse 1. The Lord said to Samuel, How long will you grieve over Saul, since I have rejected him from being king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go. I will send you to Jesse, the Bethlehemite, for I have provided for myself a king among his sons. Okay, so first, who, who is the leading character in this chapter? Uh, your, your English class, who's the subject? <laughs> who's initiating the action, the verb? It's God, right? The Lord said, that's how the, how the chapter starts. God comes to Samuel, who when the last chapter ended, chapter 15 ended, Samuel was sitting in his grief, mourning the way that Saul's reign is circling the drain. And God says to Samuel, get up, move on. I'm done with Saul. I've rejected him as Israel's king. What does he tell Samuel to do? He says, fill your horn with oil. Anybody this morning before school, did you, did you fill your horn with oil? Anybody? Anybody in the last year? Fill a horn with oil? No, really, nobody? What in the world is going on here? <laughs> what, is this, what is this filling a horn with oil? Uh, this is one of these details we can just breeze right past. Don't do that. What's going on here is really important. What kind of oil is this? It's not 10W30. It's not peanut oil for your stir fry. What in the world? Oil, and by the way, this is olive oil. There's a recipe for it in Exodus 30. Oil is a symbol of great significance in the Old Testament. When does anointing oil first occur? Bonus points for anybody who can remember this. It's Genesis 28 and through 31. It's the story of Jacob who's fleeing. He's on the run. He falls asleep in the wilderness with a rock for his pillow. And he dreams about a stairway between heaven and earth, a place where, where heaven and earth meet. When he wakes up, he names the place Bethel, the home of God. And he anoints the stone where he was sleeping. Anointing oil next appears in Exodus. And what's anointing oil used for in Exodus? Not for cooking, not to lubricate internal combustion engines. Oil had one unique purpose through the first five books of the Bible. It was to anoint sacred items that were connected to the tabernacle. So to anoint the altar, to anoint the Ark of the Covenant, to anoint the high priest. Aaron, the high priest Aaron, is the first person who's anointed in the Bible. 
Uh, he is a priest. The job of the high priest is to interface between God and man. He's a bridge between heaven and earth. That's what the tabernacle is. The tabernacle is Bethel. It's God's home. It's the, it's the place where God manifests his presence on earth. So do you know who the first non-high priest is who's anointed in the Bible? It's a little surprising. You've already met him. It's King Saul. Uh, Saul was Israel's first king, and he's the first person who's not a high priest to be anointed in the Bible. Now, why would this, this powerful symbol of anointing be transferred from the tabernacle and the high priest? Why does this get transferred to the king? What is it about a king that interfaces with God and man? We don't think of kings or presidents like that today, do we? Or, or maybe we do a little bit. We, we still expect our leaders, our, our presidents, our kings, or at least we wish that they might check in with God, stay attuned to God and his law, and then try to bring that law to bear on earth. Right? The, the king is, is the guy who's supposed to stay in touch with God, God's king, and then, and then bring God's law into effect on earth. His role, to use a different phrase, is to see to it that God's kingdom comes and God's will is done on earth as it is in heaven. And so when, when Samuel sets out to anoint David, he's not just dumping some oil on his head. He's sending a, a crystal clear message that this young guy is God's chosen king. And, and as such, it's an overtly political act. Uh, how do we know this? Because Samuel says, um, do, I, do I have to do this? Do I have to take anointing oil? Because if Saul finds out about this, uh, he's going to kill me. Like, literally, he's going to kill me. <laughs> because he's, he's crowning a new king, right? The old king, yeah, he's not going to be down with that. And nobody has to explain this fact to the people of Bethlehem either. Verse 4, it says, when, when, when Samuel gets to Bethlehem, it says, verse 4, the elders of the city came to meet him trembling. Why are they trembling? They know that if a rival king arises from their village, the current king, Saul, he's not going to just politely ask questions. He's probably going to come and wipe them all out, right? That's what a wicked king does when a new king, a rival king, a true king appears in Bethlehem a thousand years later, King Herod in Bethlehem killed every baby boy under the age of two to try to maintain his grip on power. It did not work then. It won't work here. Why? 
because God, God himself is going to carry this through. God is going to keep his covenant promise to David and David's line. Look even closer at this word anointing. You know what the Hebrew word for anointing is? Anointing is an English word, right? We translate that from Hebrew. The Hebrew word is Mashiach, Messiah. You know what the Greek New Testament translation of anointed or Messiah is? It's Christos, Christ. Anybody getting goosebumps yet? (laughs) So we have an anointed one in Bethlehem. And now, uh, you know, you know, geography in the Old Testament, it's hardly ever is it merely geography, right? It's not an accident that this is Bethlehem. Uh, so Jesse's seven sons are paraded past Samuel. And Samuel thinks this is, a, this is an impressive group of young guys. Verse 6 says, when they came, uh, sorry, I skipped a couple slides here. When they came, uh, he looked on Eliab and thought, Surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Next, Abinadab, verse 8, nope. Shammah, verse 9, nope. Verse 10, and Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel. And Samuel said to Jesse, the Lord has not chosen these. When this story gets taught in in a lot of Sunday school classes, the moral of the story is usually what? Don't judge people by their appearance. And that's true enough. That's, That's not wrong. The brothers are all tall, dark, and handsome and they're passed over by God. So when David shows up, we kind of expect him to be like the ugly duckling, right? (laughs) But no, verse 12 says, he sent and brought David in. Now he was ruddy and had beautiful eyes and was handsome. So there's no, apparently, no particular virtue to being ugly. (laughs) No particular virtue to being good looking either. That's not the point. (laughs) The point, if you teach this to your Sunday school class, is not try to be more ugly. The point is, God's kingdom is is going to advance, not by the strength of horses or chariots or wealth or good looks or high IQ or any of the things that we people value. God delights in using the weak to thwart the strong and using the foolish to embarrass the worldly wise. Why? Because this is God's project, so that no man can boast. Verse 12 continues, And the Lord said, Arise, anoint him, for this is he. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. The Spirit of the Lord, it's so often linked to anointing in the Bible because this is God's gift, the gift 
of God's Spirit. This is God's doing. Verse 14, now we have a, a complete change of scenery, but we do see the Spirit of God appearing again in the new scene, linking together these, these two scenes. There's a, there's a contrast, but there's also a linkage by the Spirit. It says, now the Spirit of the Lord departed from Saul, and a harmful spirit from the Lord tormented him. So our camera now zooms in on, on King Saul's headquarters, and it's not a happy place. Verse 15, Saul's servants said to him, Behold now, a harmful spirit from God is tormenting you. Let, us now, let our Lord now command your servants who are before you to seek out a man who is skillful in playing the lyre. And when the harmful spirit from God is upon you, he will play it and you will be well. It's kind of a, a music therapy. And wouldn't you know, they know just the guy. This is one of those uh, coincidences in God's plan that, of course, isn't really a coincidence. What do we make of this final scene? It's the audacity of it, right? I mean, David, still a really young guy, fresh out of the sheep pasture, just got covertly anointed as the new king. It's a dangerous game that's being played because he finds himself, David does, right under the very nose of the old king who obviously has no idea what's going on here. The old adage about keep your friends close and your enemies closer, Saul doesn't even realize. So what the, what the text, what the narrator is, is trying to show us is the unlikely preservation of God's plan, of God's promise. God is not afraid to put David right under Saul's nose. This is a great training ground for David, right? I mean, Saul's personal armor bearer. Uh, he gets a firsthand look at the challenges of, of running a kingdom. And David must have been <laughs> pinching himself. In fact, I would, I would wager that when the summons came to Jesse, David's father, Jesse's first thought was probably, oh, shoot, they, they, uh, Saul somehow got wind. <laughs> this is a plan to get David to the, to the, uh, to the control room of Saul's uh, kingdom to kill him, right? But that wasn't it. David even becomes a blessing to King Saul. Verse 23 says, Whenever the harmful spirit from God was upon Saul, David took the lyre and played it with his hand. So Saul was refreshed and was well, and the harmful spirit depart departed from him. Uh, let's see. Where are we? So again, we, we watch Saul continue to spiral over these next several chapters. But again, what's the big picture? The big picture is that God, God himself, is raising up a king, King David. In countless ways, David's life, David's reign, will point to a still greater king, a king who will come from obscurity in Bethlehem, a king who will deliver his people from an enemy far greater than the Philistines or than Saul. He will deliver us from our ultimate enemy, death and sin and hell. 
a king who will reign in justice and righteousness, who will love his people and shepherd them and lead them. That king will not be David, but it will come from David's own line. David himself will fail and will find himself in need of this one great final king. At the end of his life, at the end of 2 Samuel, David looks back on all the highs and lows of his life, and he recognizes that it's God who has brought him through. 2 Samuel 22, it's very near the end of the whole, the whole thing. David says this, For this I will praise you, O Lord, among the nations, and sing praises to your name. Great salvation he brings to his king and shows steadfast love to his anointed, to David and his offspring forever. And then 2 Samuel 23, verse 5, he says, For he has made with me an everlasting covenant, ordered in all things and secure. Whatever it is that you are dealing with this morning, this week, God is big enough to handle it. He is able and he loves his children. And if you are his child, if you're a Christian, you are an anointed one. You're anointed by God's spirit. God himself has bridged the gap between heaven and earth and has come to live within you. Your body is a temple of God himself, of the Holy Spirit. Your body is Bethel, God's home. You have been anointed. You have been Messiahed. You have been christened. You belong to a kingdom of priests. First Peter calls you a royal priesthood. God keeps his promises to his people. He has provided for us a savior, a great high priest, and the, the great high king of kings. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, that you keep your promises even when things look really dark, when things look impossible, that you are still king and you are going to reign. Father, help us to, to, uh, to align ourselves with you and your kingdom through faith and, and to be with you as you have promised to be with us. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.